sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHTY, the home for the politically homeless and the podcast for those of you who like their politics and colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, share it with one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows, as you well know, by word of mouth. Now, in our last episode, we learned about China's long-term plans to make the renminbi a challenger to the dollar and erode the power the U.S. has to influence geopolitics via sanctions. And for this episode, I wanted to dive deeper into the history of how the U.S. dollar became the world's reserve currency to give us a better understanding of how China's efforts are likely to play out. So to help shed some light on the subject, I invited Benjamin J. Cohen, Professor Emeritus at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of the book, Currency Statecraft, Monetary Rivalry, and Geopolitical Ambition. This book outlines how currencies gain international use and how the state can either promote or dissuade their currencies from being adopted globally. This conversation helped me better understand the position of the dollar relative to the renminbi over the long term, and it also gave me a few surprises. I will be back at the end to share them and with my final thoughts. And so before we get into the the meat of the episode, we should lay out a couple of disclaimers. Uh, First off, you and I are both very tired for your very different reasons. Uh, me for getting trapped in New York City and having to rent a car and drive back to Boston middle of last night, and you for inadvertently being spiked with caffeine after dinner. So, uh, so at any rate, I'll, I'll I'll let the listener know that. Uh, second thing we should talk about as well as your name. So Benjamin J. Co- Go- Cohen. I guess that would be your is that your nom de guerre? Is that what we what we call for, it? Or? For everything professional, yes. Got it. Got it. But Jerry is the is the actual is the name we'll use today. What, correct? what my friends call him. Okay, good. So should I? I'll call. I'm, I'll I'll refer to you as Jerry, folks. Uh, the rest of you, you're gonna have to earn that right. He's Benjamin J. <laughs> until until you get permission. Um, so you know, like I said, I was very very excited to have this conversation, especially after reading your book, uh, Currency Statecraft, which I'll include uh, in the show notes. And you know, the the thing the the, the idea that we're exploring over the past couple episodes is the idea of the U.S. losing or the U.S. dollar losing its position as the world's reserve currency. But the other thing we've been talking about as well are the efforts that countries like Russia and and China have been uh, have been putting in to get around the dollar-based system or to insulate themselves from the effect of sanctions. You know, Jerry, where, I, where I'd like to start, though, is I'd really like to start with the with the U.S. dollar becoming the world's reserve currency, because it seems as if the U.S. found its way there reluctantly. Is that fair? Yes, it is. Uh, this is not something that was designed strategically by the U.S. government. Um, it started uh, more than a century ago. Um, 
with the uh, emergence of the United States as the biggest economy in the world. Um, by the end of the 19th century, the United States was the largest economy in the world, had the largest volume of international trade. And uh, after the turn of the century, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, it was also becoming an important source of uh, capital for uh, international borrowers. Uh, New York began to emerge as a rival to London as an international financial center. And the real turning point took place uh, during World War I, uh, when many of the governments that became the allies of the United States uh, were, were borrowing directly from the U.S. Treasury to finance their war effort. These became known as the, the war bonds. And um, uh, the intention of the U.S. Treasury in making his money available had nothing to do with promoting the role of the dollar. Uh, it had to do with um, the war effort. Um, but it made the United States the biggest in, in the source of capital in the world, surpassing Britain. Um, and during the 1920s, Wall Street was where every international investor who wanted to borrow money uh, would go. Uh, the, uh, the, the emergence of the dollar in the 20s, following the, the, uh, the war bonds and then all the uh, uh, major bond issues in the 1920s, the, um, uh, the um, uh, emergence of the dollar was, was, was not something that the U.S. government sought, uh, but quite the contrary. The U.S. government took a very passive uh, position. Uh, you may recall that after the internationalism of Woodrow Wilson, uh, the man who uh, made the decision to join uh, the Allies in World War I, uh, and who was the um, uh, originator of the idea of creating a League of Nations, uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, was succeeded by Warren Harding and the Republican dominance in the Congress. Uh, and uh, they were, um, their actions were based on a totally different uh, uh, policy approach. Uh, instead of Woodrow Wilson's internationalism, they were uh, in favor of isolationism as much as possible. Uh, constantly referring to the farewell address of George Washington, who said to avoid, the United States should avoid all entangling alliances, quote unquote. Uh, and so uh, the, uh, the government that took a hands-off uh, approach to um, uh, the emergence of the dollar uh, did not oppose it, but also did not promote it. Uh, but by the end of the, uh, of the 1920s, it was clear that the dollar had surpassed um, Britain, uh, the British pound, um, uh, not because it was a design of the U.S. government, but because of the emergence of the United States as the dominant economic power in the world. Hmm. And that was something, too, that we, we talked about in the last episode, which was the fact that the U.S. arrived at this position somewhat reluctantly. As you said, the, the isolationism of the, the interwar period made the whole concept of promoting the dollar as a global currency you know, antithetical to U.S. foreign policy. Now, going going further on in history, then after World War II, 
you know, the Bretton Woods agreement is really something where you told me, I think, and I like the way you phrased this, it was really more the coronation of the dollar than it was placing the dollar at the top of the currency pyramid. Because prior to that, the dollar had already uh, become... By the the 1930s, it was clear that the dollar was the dominant international currency. The dominant international currency before World War I was pound sterling. But the British economy was really decimated by World War I and then by the uh, policies that were adopted by the British government after World War I, which were actually um, uh, responsible for some of the damage that was done to the British economy. By the 1930s, the British pound was really in decline. Uh, and the only way that Britain could maintain a role, an international role for the pound sterling was by uh, creating the so-called sterling block or sterling area, which gave certain privileges to countries that were willing to continue to use the uh, pound sterling. Uh, but most of the world turned by the 30s, had turned to the dollar. Um, and so it was natural that when, they, when the allied nations, 44 nations plus one neutral, uh, sat down in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, it was, it was natural that they would uh, look to the United States for leadership and uh, look to the dollar as, as the uh, core of a new international monetary system. Uh, the, um, the purpose of the Bretton Woods Agreement was to establish the rules of the game for the post-war period. Uh, it, it was all centered on the role that the dollar played as a reserve asset for central banks, as well as the principal currency for international trade or investment. Total aside, totally unrelated to this, but in a past life, I was a stand-up comic, and I actually performed at the same hotel where the Bretton Woods Agreement. The Mount Washington Hotel. My, my career was, was, was far less uh, longstanding uh, <laughs> than was the Bretton Woods Agreement, but, you know, there's, there's still time. Um, so... The, the the one thing I want to get back to, too, which I feel maybe we should, you know, or blank we should fill in here, too, is what was it that made the dollar so attractive? You know, international currencies play a lot of roles. Um, some, they, they, they're used to, for the uh, denomination and settlement of international trade. They're used for international borrowing. Uh, they're used by governments uh, as an anchor for, for those, for the currencies of those governments. Uh, it's, a princi- it's the principal asset that's held by central banks behind their national money supply. Uh, all of these roles are played by an international currency. Um, who makes, creates an international currency? Uh, the markets do. Uh, governments need to have a currency which is acceptable internationally. Uh, governments issue a national currency and can, through uh, such things as um, legal tender requirements, uh, can make sure that their currency is uh, dominant within the borders of the territorial state, the sovereign state. But governments cannot force other governments or international actors to use their currency. They have to make it attractive, or it has to become attractive. Uh, what does that mean, to become attractive? Well. First of all, it means that um, the currency is useful. 
uh, and that translates into um, the necessity that it come from a country which is a very large economy with a lot of international trade and investment linkages, connections. You wouldn't, um, uh, governments and market actors are unlikely to adopt for use the currency of Luxembourg. Uh, mm -hmm. They're going to adopt the currency of one of the biggest, if not the biggest, economy in the world. Secondly, um, currencies are why an international currency is widely held as a store of value. Um, but people, people, market actors, and central banks are going to prefer holding their assets, their international assets, in a currency uh, which is based on a market which has all the great qualities of depth depth, breadth, and resiliency. They want, they're looking for liquidity. They're looking for a, a big, deep market in which they can hold their assets and count on those assets retaining value uh, where those assets can be liquidated on short notice if necessary and so on. Those are the two major conditions that determine whether a, a currency is going to be attractive or not. And by the end of World War II, there was only one currency that had those qualities and that was of course the US dollar. And and so to to fill in the blanks too for for you listening, you know, what what Bretton Woods effectively did is it was an agreement by 44 countries to peg their currency to the dollar and really to 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 add some stability to global financial markets. Whereas before, you know, one of the big causes or at least a an aggravator uh, during the World War II era was hyperinflation. Uh, you know, was the fact that that many countries chose to inflate their way out of their economic problems. Um, now, getting beyond Bretton Woods, then, so the dollar is established as the the global reserve currency. Let me just suggest yeah. that the better term is international currency or mm. global currency, because the a reserve currency is just one of the several roles that an international currency can play. So. Reserve would 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 imply you know holdings in central banks. Exactly. International currency would also imply trade and and things of that nature. Correct. Trade and international bond issues, borrowing and lending, a lot lot more than just reserve asset. Okay, got it. Noted. Noted. So then, when the dollar becomes the international currency or the predominant international currency, and countries start to rebuild out of World War II, we see a couple. I wouldn't say challengers emerge, but we see a couple of currencies have to make decisions regarding their internationalization. And, and the two you cited in your book were the West German Deutschmark and the Japanese yen. And both chose deliberately not to promote their, the internationalization of their currency. And can you talk about why? Sure, sure. It, 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 uh, on the surface, it looks paradoxical uh, that countries had uh, currencies that were so uh, apparently attractive. Um, Germany and, and Japan were uh, respectively the third and second largest economies by the 1960s and 70s. Japan was number two, West Germany was number three, and each in its region uh, was the dominant economic power. Each in its region had, uh, uh, could make use of its own currency, uh, and yet it, these two countries chose not to promote the internationalization of their currencies, not to promote international use of the currency. And it is it does seem paradoxical that here they had the opportunity and they didn't take it. Why is that? Because 
um, to, to allow your currency to become international has disadvantages as well as advantages. Uh, one of the disadvantages, which was very apparent to anyone who, who was watching what was happening to the United States in the 60s and 70s, one of the disadvantages is that the, the issuing country, the country that issues the currency, um, uh, becomes more and more indebted to the outside world. If, if foreigners acquire assets denominated in your currency, that's they have a claim, you have a debt. And the, these debts can accumulate. And much of the trouble that the U.S. had in the 60s and 70s had to do with the fact that uh, the debts of the United States were growing. Uh, and um, uh, there was a, a risk that it would cause difficulty for the U.S. economy. The other disadvantage to emphasize uh, is that uh, the more one's currency is used internationally, um, the more likely it is that you will be expected to take on certain responsibilities, responsibilities of leadership, responsibility to help out countries that get into difficulty uh, and the like. And neither West Germany nor Japan wanted to do that. We have to remember that they had recently both experienced incredible devastation, including two atomic bombs over Japan. They had, they had experienced terrible uh, devastation. And uh, both societies, the West German and the Japanese, were determined to avoid the history, if you will. To, to avoid the possibility that they would be once again uh, at risk of, of such devastation. Their, their preference was to concentrate on economics, the recovery of their economies from the devastation of World War II, and to leave geopolitical security to the United States. They relied on the security blanket of the United States or the security umbrella of the United States. And um, they felt no desire to uh, take a leadership role um, uh, because of the historical memory. Germany clearly wanted to uh, make amends, Japanese likewise. Um, and so uh, a situation in which they had the capacity to promote their currency, their currencies were in demand in their respective regions. Uh, but they chose not to because they wanted to avoid uh, resurrecting memories of what happened earlier. This was this was one of the things too you brought up in your book, which is that it's not just markets that make an international currency, but there's also an extent of geopolitical ambition that guides it. And to your point, Germany and Japan, both after World War II, really had no ambition to, to to try and run the world again, so to speak, or to... It, was, it was quite the contrary. They, they, they refused to take on responsibilities. They left it to the United States. And, and that was, that was kind of another thing that popped up at me, which is in a way, would you say that Germany and Japan almost made extra room for the dollar by refusing to let their currencies internationalize? What they did was to resist the temptation to promote international use of their currencies. And in that sense, 
they left the field open to the dollar. By not promoting the internationalization of their currencies, they left a vacuum in effect in the international monetary system that had to be filled by the dollar. And, and a lot too, a lot of what we're talking about is really, again, the U.S. sort of being awarded power in a way, or the dollar being 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 awarded power uh, in a way. Are are there instances where the U.S. took a more active role in promoting the dollar's use? Yes, yes. If if we go back to the beginning of the post-war period, the first fifteen years or so after World War II, the uh, the dollar enjoyed absolute supremacy. The dollar clearly dominated. Uh, why, you might ask? Uh, in, in terms of its international roles, ultimately the um, acceptability of the dollar as the principal international currency was based on the promise of convertibility of the dollar into gold. Uh, this was a, a, a relic from the days of the gold standard in the 19th century. The U.S. government uh, had made a promise that any central bank holding dollars could convert those dollars into U.S. gold on demand. Now, that was fine in the first years after World War II because there was much more gold in Fort Knox uh, than dollars in the hands of foreigners. But as the use of the dollar expanded and more and more dollars came into the ownership of foreign uh, actors, market actors, and central banks. This um, made it much more difficult for the United States to live up to its commitment of con unlimited convertibility. You couldn't have unlimited convertibility if you had $11 billion uh, worth of gold, uh, but liabilities much larger than $11 billion. There was a risk that dollar convertibility uh, would um, lead to a crisis. So in the 1960s, um, efforts began to build safeguards, to build fortifications around the dollar in various ways. And the U.S. government was active in promoting continued foreign use of, of the dollar. Uh, one of the best known examples was in 1967, uh, Germany had accumulated a, a substantial amount of, of dollars in, in the reserves of the Deutsche Bundesbank, the Central Bank of the Federal Republic of Germany. The United States demanded, literally demanded, some form of assurance from the West German government that uh, the Germans would not try to convert their dollars into gold. And this finally resulted in a, in a memo sent by the head of the Bundesbank uh, to the U.S. Treasury in which Germany made that formal commitment. It was um, something that the U.S. government was, get, was able to get them to do because West Germany was so dependent on the U.S. security umbrella uh, in, in confrontation, in the Cold War confrontation. With, uh, another example came after the first oil shock in 1973. Uh, Saudi Arabia, the biggest member of OPEC, suddenly found itself with billions and billions of dollars. And the question was, what were they going to do with them? The U.S. negotiated an agreement. Uh, that, some of the details of that agreement are still a state secret. Um, but the Saudis would continue to accept and hold their dollars in exchange for security guarantees from the United States. 
and uh, uh, and to this day that agreement uh, is, is still in effect. The Saudis have implicit, uh, it's not formal, uh, formally a formal alignment alliance like the uh, NATO, but in the confidential agreement that was signed, uh, the U.S. pledged to defend the security interests of Saudi Arabia in exchange for their commitment to continue to use the dollar. Those are two examples of where the U.S. did intervene actively to protect or promote the role of the dollar. In more recent years, um, there has been no similar example. The U.S. government has, uh, in the more recent decades, uh, the U.S. government has acted as if um, uh, the, um, the international role of the dollar uh, are um, uh, unquestioned and um, uh, the government uh, simply assumes that um, those uh, that the uh, benefits uh, that are derived from the international use of the dollar will always be available. In other words, the U.S. government has grown complacent, uh, and um, uh, we have uh, uh, right now uh, a good example of what that complacency can lead to. Uh, as you know, in the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, the U.S. government has weaponized, in effect, has weaponized the dollar, um, has frozen the dollar reserves of the Central Bank of Russia, uh, and uh, denied them access to their own dollars, in effect. Um, the um, uh, U.S. government has uh, introduced these uh, economic sanctions uh, without any hesitation. Uh, but uh, what um, uh, many people worry about is that this will encourage not just Russia, but also China, Brazil, India, and a lot of other countries uh, to look for an alternative to the dollar uh, because they don't want to be put in the same position that the Russians have been put into. Uh, and so it's very possible that the weaponization of, um, uh, of the dollar for the purposes of the Ukraine crisis uh, may lead to uh, a, um, an erosion of the international role of the dollar uh, as governments look for an alternative. That actually, in quick second, I'm just, just, just a quick second, Jerry, sorry, I just have something going on here I have to tend to, I'll be right back. But that actually that 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 comment you made really tees up what what got me down this thread, which was with the with the war in Ukraine, with Russia being cut off from uh, the dollar-based system of uh, international finance, with their central bank reserves being frozen. Um, there was the question as to would this accelerate the move away from the dollar, or would this accelerate? Uh, the the pace at which countries like China and Russia, for example, look for an alternative, and and I guess like 
to, to kind of go zoom out on this and give it a historical perspective, you guys, I was reading your book, one of the things that I picked up was that the dollar was, the dollar achieved its status passively, but there was also, there was a sense of mutual benefit. You know, the U.S. was a large economy. It was a stable economy. There was, of course, the defense umbrella. And this, this kind of brings us to present day where you have, as, as the way you phrase it in your book, the greenback, the U.S. dollar versus the redback, the renminbi. You know, what, what does China offer? What does the redback offer other economies, aside from just a way around the dollar? That is the, uh, the $64 trillion question that everybody uh, uh, with an interest in this subject, everybody's concerned about. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that there are two major characteristics that um, uh, determine how attractive a currency is internationally. Uh, one is the size of your economy and the size of your international trade and investment connections. And the other is financial markets that are well-developed that provide uh, investors and, and others who use the currency uh, a high degree of liquidity. The Chinese offer the first. Uh, China's economy is r rapidly becoming the biggest in the world. Um, in fact, by, by some measures based on purchasing power parity, uh, the Chinese economy may already be bigger than the U.S. economy. And it's already the largest trading nation in the world. Uh, so it, it does offer a, a currency that, that would be useful for transactions purposes. But the problem that the Chinese have is that they do not meet the second condition that I mentioned. Their financial markets are still relatively primitive. Chinese financial markets are just simply no match for the U.S. On top of which, they, they've created a great wall around the financial system, which is to say restrictions on the ability to uh, either acquire the renminbi or to sell the renminbi. The market is neither well-developed nor open. And that means that the currency is far less attractive. You might ask, why don't they do something about that? Why don't they open it up? If they open it up, it means that they lose a degree of control over the financial market. They are reluctant to introduce more uh, open financial markets because it would mean that the government would be less able to control events in financial markets. There would be funds flowing in and out of the economy to, that might destabilize the economy. So Chinese Communist Party, the leadership in, in Beijing, is caught uh, on its own petard, if you will, unable to open the financial markets as much as would be needed to make the currency make the currency attractive for political reasons. There's also a third consideration that um, to keep in mind. Historically, every great international currency was issued by a democracy, by a country that had respect for the rule of law, uh, for the fulfillment of contracts, uh, protection of property rights, and so on. Uh, China is obviously uh, an exception to that. Much of the reason why the renminbi has not done better than it has has to do with the fact that um, international traders and investors lack sufficient trust in the 
Chinese authorities. Uh, the Chinese government is, uh, has a, a long-standing reputation of, being, of acting arbitrarily, of not respecting the rule of law, not respecting sanctity of contracts, not um, protecting property rights. What is it? What is it about democracies that make them more attractive to investors? I'd love to dig into that a little more because this is something I came yeah. across when I spoke with with Barry Eichengreen as well, which is how debt markets grew more sophisticated as the, the, the world became more democratized. I, I think that democracy is uh, a word that uh, embodies certain attributes uh, of a political system or a, politi- a system of political economy. Um, and I've already emphasized that it's, it's sanctity of contracts respect for property rights, protection of property rights, respect for the rule of law. That's what goes with democracy. Democracy embodies those fundamentals. And if we're talking about market actors, market actors clearly are going to prefer to use a currency which is issued by a country that has these attributes. The internationalization of a currency is not something that is created by the issuer of the currency. A a government of a country with a popular currency cannot force people to use it. They they can make it as attractive as possible to encourage uh, use of of their currency, but they can't uh, force anyone outside the borders of the issuing country. They can't force them to use a currency. That's what happened in the case of pound sterling in the 19th century, the dollar in the interwar period, uh, West German Deutschmark and Japanese yen in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Their currencies became more attractive, uh, sometimes as a result of market development, sometimes as a result of government action. You have to persuade people to use it. You can think of it simply as supply and demand. I was trained in economics originally, so... uh, uh, I, I naturally think in terms of supply and demand and, and an issuing government. Let's say we're talking about the Chinese government. Government can, can increase the supply of renminbi, can make the supply available. But whether that, that currency is used or not is going to be decided on the demand side of the market by international investors, international traders, by investors, by central banks and so on. They have to be persuaded to use it. They won't be persuaded if they don't trust the government uh, to respect their property rights to uh, to stand up for their contracts and the like. What what attracts market actors and central banks to a particular currency uh, is the assurance that uh, their their property rights will be respected. This brings us to 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 China's efforts right now. To you know, ele- to elevate its standing, but also to make the renminbi more ubiquitous mm-hmm. in global trade. But it doesn't seem like their vision for this Chinese economic sphere is one that's going to persuade markets. Uh, I have to agree with that. Um, the Chinese have have been working very uh, hard at making their currency more attractive. Uh, how have they done it? Well, one thing they've set up a series of 
so-called swap agreements with foreign central banks. There are about three dozen of them. Um, and the idea is that um, uh, under these agreements, uh, if a country uh, experiences difficulty, it'll be able to um, borrow from, from the Chinese. Uh, and that way, the use of the yuan or renminbi would be encouraged. Um, but it's significant that um, uh, of these roughly three dozen countries that have signed agreements, only one has actually made use of it. And it's really not a country, it's Hong Kong. Uh, so a special okay. case. Um, the, um, uh, the, the fact is that um, uh, the Chinese uh, have been unsuccessful. Uh, and uh, the uh, reason is, as I just suggested, uh, is because people fundamentally don't trust that, that their uh, property rights will be properly respected. Um, the, um, the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Just look at, at international reserves, for example. Um, the, uh, the, according to data from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, uh, which was created at Bretton Woods in 1944, um, the uh, uh, global reserves, the US dollar accounts for about 60% of global reserves. Renminbi accounts for 2%. And that hasn't changed any. Renminbi is uh, about at the same level as the Australian dollar, the Canadian dollar, uh, the Mexican peso for that matter. Uh, it's, not, uh, it, it's, it's not by any means a successful international currency, uh, not yet. Um, and uh, I, I think it's clear that it won't become a successful international currency uh, without a fundamental change in the political, uh, in, in the attitude of the pol political authorities in, in Beijing. Uh, until they, they can open their financial markets and give uh, international traders and investors and central banks the um, assurance that the, uh, that the sanctity of, of law will be uh, preserved. Uh, until that happens, uh, they're not going to be very successful. Do, do you think that that's a realistic possibility? No, I don't. Not, I mean, I, I really don't anticipate that the Chinese Communist Party can, can change it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not going to change its spots. Uh, it's, uh, it, it relies on a, um, uh, on, a, on a fundamental social contract. Um, and, and at least it has since uh, the, the days of Deng Xiaoping uh, in, in 1980. Mm -hmm. um, basically, the social contract says that the, the government has total authority, total power, um, uh, and, and that it's right to exercise monopoly of political power uh, is um, uh, treated as legitimate as long as the, the, the population of the country benefits international benefits economically. Uh, and this is a country that has 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 really produced one of the great economic miracles of, of the um, modern era. Uh, this is a country that achieved double digit growth for about 30 years in a row. Uh, its economy and its grown from, from nothing 
to number two and possibly number one in the world. Um, as long as the Chinese Communist Party was able to pro uh, provide rising economic benefits, uh, among other things, it has eliminated more poverty than any other country in history uh, in terms of the number of people brought out of poverty. Um, as long as they can continue to provide these kinds of economic benefits, the social contract gives them ultimate uh, total authority politically. Uh, it's clear that if they lose a degree of control over the economy, those material benefits may be reduced. And if those material benefits uh, are reduced, the Communist Party's social contract uh, may weaken and people will begin to, to look elsewhere for leadership uh, in, in the domestic system. Uh, and um, uh, I don't see the, the Communist Party allowing that to happen. So working backward, if they, if they don't re relax their control over the markets, uh, then uh, the, um, uh, the currency will not succeed internationally. Well, and it, it, it's interesting you say that because I, I think one of the one of the ideas that I've been thinking about for a while is the the fate of the dollar and whether the dollar can sustain its role and also the idea that China might someday supplant it and it it sounds to me from our conversation like it's less likely that you're going to see a day where the red back just takes effectively knocks the dollar off the hill um, without any significant reforms. And it's more likely maybe that the red back forms this coalition that almost exists in opposition to the U.S. dollar. Where if it, is that I, feasible? No, I don't think or, that's no? feasible. I, I, I don't think that um, uh, other governments are going to join any kind of currency coalition with, uh, with the Chinese. What I do anticipate is that there will be um, a nibbling around the edges of the dollar's dominance. Uh, we, um, if we look at, I'm, I'm sure that um, Barry Eisengreen spoke with you about this. Um, if you look at the reserve role um, and you look at the currency composition of international reserves in the world, uh, what you see is a, a gradual decline in the dollar share. Um, two or three decades ago, it was above 70%. Now it's about 60%. Um, the interesting question is to see who, who's benefiting from that. What currencies are being used? If the dollar share is going down, somebody else's share must be going up. Who, who are they? And the interesting answer is that they are not the traditional alternatives to the dollar, the euro has also declined. Uh, it's, number, it's the number two currency in the world, uh, but um, uh, the, uh, the euro share of global reserves has also declined. British pound has also declined. Swiss franc has also declined. Who, who's going up? What shares are going up? A, 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 another group of currencies, including uh, in particular the Australian dollar, the um, uh, the Canadian dollar, uh, Mexican peso, 
um, Swedish krona, a few currencies like that. What we're finding is that there's more and more diversification going on. Uh, and, um, uh, and so there's, uh, uh, from the Australian dollar goes from 2% to 3% and the Canadian dollar goes from 3% to 4%. You add up those, those extra percents uh, and they are the um, uh, evidence of decline, uh, of erosion rather, uh, of the dollar's privileged position. Uh, of the uh, diversification that has occurred over the last 20 to 30 years, uh, only about one quarter of it, 25% or so, uh, has been because of the rise of the RMB. The RMB is still uh, a, a very minor currency. I think this is a race in which they are and also are. Um, the others have each picked up a piece, a piece, a piece. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, it means that the position of the dollar uh, is still absolutely dominant. Uh, if you look at the various roles that international currencies play, the role of the dollar is, is, is always dominant. If you look at the role that the dollar plays as a vehicle for foreign exchange transactions, something on the order of uh, 45% of, uh, of all transactions um, involve the dollar on one side or the other. Uh, the dollar dominates as the currency of denomination of international trade, about 50% of world trade is denominated in dollar. Uh, international financial uh, markets, uh, bond markets, banking markets, dollar is, uh, is dominant. The dollar is the anchor for uh, about 55 countries around the world. Uh, that's about uh, 25 to 30% of all uh, other currencies. Um, if you take all of this picture, what you see is a kind of currency that is clearly still dominant, but maybe eroding bit by bit. It's not a case of, the, of there being a wolf at the door. It's more like termites in the woodwork. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. This podcast grows by what, everyone? That's right, by word of mouth. I say it every week. Uh, also, Jerry's book can be purchased wherever books are sold. I will also have a link to it in the show notes. The title is Currency Statecraft. I would strongly recommend picking it up. Now, the biggest surprise for me in this conversation was how weak China's position is in gaining global adoption of their currency over the long term, because while they have an enormous economy and have seen remarkable growth, the lack of transparency and respect for property rights is a significant problem when it comes to attracting foreign investment. And this means China either needs to liberalize or find some other way to expand its economic sphere. And that is not all good news, however, because while China might not be in a strong position to gain the world's reserve currency status, the U.S. might not be in the best position to hold it. And if you listen to any of the episodes that we did on the national debt in February of this year, every guest cited political polarization as a threat to the finances of the U.S., 
as an inability to reach an agreement on the debt could potentially reduce the dollar's credibility worldwide. And that would lead to a rise in interest rates, meaning more of the federal budget would be spent on debt service payments, meaning less money would be spent on things voters love, meaning angry voters and more polarization. And the downward spiral would leave a vacuum that one or more currencies would have to fill. Now, the second part is that China's unlikely to willingly implement the reforms necessary to attract foreign investment, meaning that any measure to grow their economic sphere would have to be done via coercive means. And this could be in the form of predatory lending. However, there's also a history of nations absorbing other nations to make this happen. And this is something we saw with Japan and Germany in World War II. Now, reforms to reduce polarization in the U.S., such as ranked choice voting, wouldn't solve the China problem, but it would keep us from shooting ourselves in the foot in the process. Fun. Now, we've got one more episode in the series coming up that's going to dive into the downsides of dollar dominance. I hope you will join me for that. And as always... Music, courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's producer and editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Ooh, bye-bye.